welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Good afternoon. Let's pray together as we come. We're in God's word together. Maybe as we come to pray, let's just notice how we come. Um, Maybe we come distracted, maybe we come full of energy, maybe we come tired, hungry, or however. Let's just notice how we come into God's presence and ask distractions be pushed aside. Father, we come as uh, wanting to lean in, uh, bring in our, our lives before you, and wanting to draw closer to you, Lord. Thank you that you want to be known and that you speak, God. Um, Help us to hear what you would say to us this morning, this afternoon, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hello. Welcome. My name's Stephen, by the way, just in case I've not had a chance to meet you before. I serve as pastor of uh, the community here at Adelaide Place, and you join us as we are not long started a series exploring the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. The whole series is called Longing for Eden, which, like all my best titles, are stolen from other people. It's the name of a chapter from a, a book by an Old Testament scholar called Michael Morales, and it's, he's written an incredible book, um, but I love that title. And the title itself is a hint at the story arc that Genesis sets up for the Hebrew Bible uh, and the entire Christian Bible as we know it, about longing for God's intimate presence. We said last week that another hint at the main story arc of uh, Genesis um, is in the way the whole book begins with this picture of the intimacy in the garden of God's presence. And yet if we read right now to the end of Genesis to chapter 50, we would find that it ends with Joseph buried in exile, if you like, in Egypt. And so there is a clue there that this is about presence lost and the stumbling journey of how God will work out his dedication and his promise to restore all things. And we have it in the very shape of the book and in uh, the title that I've given this series. And through the creation accounts we started to think of just last week, we learned by faith to see that the whole world was intended to be God's temple, temple being God's dwelling place. And we learned to see the the chapters one and two as like a cosmic liturgy of praise of God's amazing temple, God's house being this world that he's created. And the whole world was to be filled with God's presence and the creatures were intended to know their Sabbath end, which is how we talked about their end to know God, to walk with him and to glorify him in his house. And that was how we set it up last week. This week we are hanging out again right at the beginning of our Bibles. We don't get the chance to do that very often. So it's it's quite a privilege to be right back at the start of our Bibles in Genesis 1 and a bit more this week of Genesis 2. And 
remember that when we ignore the start of the story in the Bible, it can very often lead to important distortions later on. If we miss the start of the movie, as he said last week, don't be that annoying person who comes in afterwards and starts missing the point and asking random questions. There's something that's really important uh, about the start of the Bible. And so Jesus saw himself as the one who, in effect, brought the entire story to its climax. And so we strive to understand Jesus in light of this reality, not on terms of our own, lest we distort the person of Jesus himself by ignoring the beginning of the story uh, as we have it in our Bibles. Now, to move things or nudge things forward a wee bit from where we uh, got to last week, um, I, I want to invite us to hold a question and also a, a, a picture in our minds as we go, both of which may just help us interact with the, the reading that you've already heard uh, this afternoon. The, the question is this, what counts as spiritual? You could put the question as what is spirituality or, or what is Christian spirituality, but just, just br- broadly, if you like, what counts as spiritual? In your mind or in your thoughts or maybe from a Christian perspective or from any perspective. Just hold that thought. No answers, no prizes. Hold that thought somewhere in your mind. And of course, if you went to Waterstones, you went into the spirituality and religion section, you'd find a whole bunch of different answers, different titles, different themes. That would make you realize there's lots of different ways you could answer that question. I even found myself this week almost tripping myself up. I was about to type a a message on our staff Slack thing to to David about, and the question was going to be, what's the spiritual input to the weekend away? And I was about to send, I was like, no, that question's not jiving with my sermon. What's the spiritual input to the weekend away? Who knows? You'll find out when you sign up and you come along. But what counts as spiritual? in your mind, in our minds. And the second thing just to hold is this picture. And and what I want you to picture, if you're good at using your imagination, is picture yourself, if you can, over the last week, and maybe at a moment where you're just at the end of maybe an exhausting day at work. And you're maybe on the train or the car or walking home, and you're just maybe just tired and exhausted, but given it all. Or maybe it's a moment where you're, with the kids and it's that chaotic sort of bedtime or dinner time sort of thing and it's just all going in lots of different directions. Or maybe it's just a time where you're right in the thick of a problem or something of sorting out somebody or some problem at work. Go on, just even if it's just picturing one minute or one glimpse of that in your mind just now. Some of you are good at this, some will be bad at this. Hold the question and hold the picture as we look again at what is celebrated and elevated in the two creation accounts of Genesis that we've just heard read back to back. But first, just a little bit of background reading again, like we did. We started out last week, we, we, we put a few tips, if you like, of, of how to read. And I don't want to recap those, they're on Instagram if you find... Uh, some of those tips helpful, but just a little bit of background reading again that maybe uh, help us uh, in just in terms of interacting with this text in Genesis. 
Some things are worth knowing, not in great detail, but there are tangible differences in the two creation accounts that you've just heard read, even with some surface level incongruencies or different orders in how they're presented. And generally, generally, it's good to have some sort of awareness about modern scholarship's understanding about the composition of Genesis. In other words, how and who put it together um, has been the source of many PhDs and many uh, a person's time over many centuries. Um, so we don't need to know it in lots of detail, but once upon a time, not that long, long ago, in vogue and popular was something called the documentary hypothesis. Now, you could go and look it up and there'll be reference to how you could spend all your days filled with that, but it was the recognition that actually this text has got, though it's claimed, by, it's claimed to be written by Moses, has loads of different voices going on it that, that are competing, that, that don't all neatly uh, align on a surface level. And so scholars spent huge amount of effort going and tracing the sources and spent a lot of time into the, and they largely did it into four sources which made up the documentary hypothesis that there was a Yahwehist tradition in terms of a contribution to this, there was an Elohim tradition, there was a, a Deuteronomist and a priestly tradition from different time periods that have all come together uh, and, and given us what we find in the book of Genesis. And the hope of this documentary hypothesis when it was in its heyday was that it would bring some sort of exactitude or, or certainty about what we can find and what goes on in the book of Genesis. There's a podcast, we'll link to that, that will maybe help you understand just a wee bit further um, if you want to go there. But it's worthwhile recognizing why that's where scholarship has been in general. Most of scholarship today has moved not away from, but beyond this idea that we can actually get at the original sources. Most people recognize it's been, some of it's been written so, so long ago, we just don't know the answers to the questions. And actually scholarship now wants to recognize that, but actually pushes more to look at this as we find it as the literary, literary whole that we have it together in our Bibles. And to pay attention to that and to, to recognize, actually, okay, at the very least, there has been a process of editors involved in bringing this uh, book we have, uh, Genesis, together. And as we look at it in as, as a whole, in broad strokes, Genesis 1 is, is, like, is more from like a grand universal perspective of the creation of the world. And in Genesis 2, it's a bit more on the ground and, and a bit more of a, a human-centered approach to the creation of the world with the um, emphasis on the creation of Adam and Eve. And these complement each other and Genesis 2 complements and develops that which has been mentioned in Genesis 1. And it's worth noting as we read it, neither of these accounts, just to put it out there, are giving us the perspective that it, as if, if we had a camera rolling whenever all this was happened, it's not like it's given us that sort of perspective as if we just could have caught it in camera, then we could explain it. That's not what Genesis is doing. It is working in this ancient Near East concept or ancient Near East context with concepts, events, myths, and worldviews that is all competing in the background that are trying to uh, tell us something about who God is and about the origin of our world. And to say that it's engaging with myth is not to say it's all non-historical, 
But perhaps to indicate that giving a, to say it's giving a historical account, it might not be the historical account in the way that we're used to hearing it. It's the sort of exactitude and scientific approach we may like. Now, all that I say, don't get lost in the detail. Go as deep and, and as far off that deep end as you want to go, and I will keep feeding Instagram and the emails with as much detail as you want to go. But it's just good to have an awareness that those, those conversations are going on. But not, let's not get distracted because we're not here just to talk like about God. We're here to be in his presence and, and listen and respond to him. And last week we we emphasize the goodness and delight of God, who created order by creating the realms. If you remember from last week, we've seen that as realms in day one, two, and three. Day one, light and day. Day two, sea and sky. And day three, land and vegetation. He created the realms. And then four, five, and six as a parallel, he filled the realms with the sea creatures and, and vegetation and humankind and so on. And, to, and the, so it all culminates in the seventh day, in the Sabbath. And if we are noticing again what is celebrated and elevated in these accounts, we have to come back to this concept and this idea of the goodness and life force of the first uncaused cause, that is God himself. It all begins with him, his goodness and who he is. And so in a nutshell, let's just notice the goodness of God as, as we then pay attention to the things that this good God delights in. The depiction of God and his goodness is, is portrayed in some subtle ways and some overt ways. In the first account, God is designated in a general uh, term, Elohim, and the second chapter is the Lord Yahweh. Both can signify in their different ways his goodness. The words Ruach Elohim, it means wind or, or breath of God. It's used, this, this is a, a metaphor for the life-giving personal energy or, or, or presence of God, his invisible presence. And like the wind or breath, it's, we cannot see it, but yet we see its effect. We see what it does. And this is a metaphor that is deployed here as the, the, the wind, the breath of God here is bringing order from this, this pre-created chaos is how it was viewed. And there is a, a comparison Possibly likely in, in the background, there's many competing uh, narratives of creation in the ancient Near East. One of the popular ones in, in Babylon would have had a whole lot of conflict. And just on this theme of, of um, breath and spirit, and one of the other narratives has a, a god who's called Marduk. And at one point in the creation narrative, he lets loose a violent wind that uh, another god swallows up and it blows her up and makes her vulnerable and, and allows her to be killed. And so we have this violent picture of what a violent wind does. And then here in Genesis, we have God's breath or wind and it's hovering over the waters in a, in a positive fashion, over the surface of the water, perhaps to calm any negative energy. And as one commentator puts it, it it's, it's that merciful wind that is blowing the chaos into order. And so God's goodness is expressed in this way, and God's goodness is also expressed in his word, which is what brings life and order in these accounts. It's his word, his speech, that brings, that holds the creative power and brings things into being. And just note the, 
the proximity of, in, in verse one, two, of God's breath and his word. This invisible force is over the earth and then straight away God's speech and God said, let there be light. And somebody pointed out in, in the, the connection between speech and breath, we know to speak involves breath being breathed in and over a vocal cords. And so there is a sense here of an intimate connection between God's spirit and his speech breathing out life. God creates by his speech and his word. And his word here is depicted as a powerful energy that gives life and gives of his goodness. And so God is good as portrayed here in Genesis and deeply involved in his, by his word and by his spirit in order to create order, sustenance of life. And yet God is still distinct from his creation. He's not aloof, but he is distinct. Because if we jump to the end of the first creation account, which strangely enough is at the start of Genesis 2, for some reason, I have no idea. You can ask the people who put verses together and all that. Don't know why they did that. But in the end of uh, the start of Genesis 2, we find the end of the first creation. And the picture moves to one of God completing the heavens and earth in all their vast array. I love that line, all their vast array as the master craftsman kind of stands back and looks. And it's, this is a Sabbath moment where God created as the master craftsman and just stands back and looks at what he has made. Now, there is a distinction in his goodness and in his involvement by his word his, and his spirit. He is distinct, not dependent on his creation. There is a creature, creaturely, a creator, creaturely distinction that's really important to see. He is not dependent on this creation. But he stands back at the, the vast array of his work and delights in it, utterly delights in the goodness of what he has created. And I don't know about you when you think of Sabbath. I grew up in Northern Ireland, so it tends to be quite a religious uh, connotation. But there is no legalistic concept to Sabbath here. This is just of God stepping back and going like, isn't this good, very good, that he has done out of grace and effortlessly by his powerful word. And that is the picture we have here of this good God. Speaking of the word uh, good, um, the, the word good in Hebrew, there's a range, but in general, it, it, it tallies with how we use in the English language the word uh, good. We, we use it in lots of different ways. It can mean things feel good, means uh, things look good. It can mean things are morally good, depending on usage. Or somebody put it, it can simply be looking at things and looking for things which are beautiful and, and proper. And you could probably look at it as we hear this description of the goodness and the very goodness of creation, you can probably just see God stepping back and saying, look at the beauty, look what's proper, look what just feels good, looks good, look what is morally good. And we see just this collision of, of goodness that um, the master craftsman is, is looking at. So if we can hold that image and say, Genesis tells us a lot about who God is, then what does he delight in? There is great delight in Genesis 1 and 2. First, in Genesis 1 of the realms I've talked about, 
of creating the different realms of separation of light and dark and sea and sky and land and vegetation and how they're filled, the created world, the order, vegetation, animals, cattle, sea creatures, just love that term, just like things, like makes me think of sea monsters, but just things that fill the sea in all their diversity. Of course, humanity is given, bestowed, with special honor as image bearers and ones who can know God in a different way and with a different level of responsibility in, in all of the creation story. And we see how much delight God takes in just creating uh, male and female in his image. Genesis 2 paints a very intimate and dynamic image of Yahweh giving his breath of life to the first human in, in Genesis 2, 7. He's delighting in humans and how he has made them and who he has made them. We have this kind of clunky term, a term that's got this checkered history where woman is created as man's helper. And without getting into the, that checkered history in, in lots of ways, I, I'm going to point to the, to the relational communal uh, capacity that is brought in this male-female relationship. I don't think this should be read in a sort of patriarchal way, in a way that makes the woman inferior in, in any way. I think it has been. I think it's done a lot of damage. I know people will disagree with me. That's okay. But there's a whole history of, of interpreting this, which puts women in a really low footing, which has been hugely uh, unfortunate. But for the sake of that checkered history of a term, there's a huge tradition growing that says this term itself, helper, maybe doesn't mean what we have thought it has meant. And so there's something here about recognizing that God sees man and sees the need for relationship, the need for community, the need for a bonding that none of the other creation uh, account or, or creatures will satisfy. And we have it here in the maleness and female, which both represent together equally something of who God is as well. We have trees. We have trees. Trees are celebrated wildly in the Bible, more than you would probably realize, or more than I certainly realize. And I love this, the fact, this is in, in Genesis 2.9, we have trees that were pleasing to the eye, just good-looking good trees, beauty. And we have trees that uh, produce good fruit to satisfy uh, I know, I don't know very much about this, but I know there's a long debate between form and function in the art world and which comes first. I have no idea what the answer is, but I just like there's form and function there. Just nice trees to look at and useful trees that have a purpose. And do you know what? In Genesis 2, verse 9, they're just celebrated, these wonderful trees. As well as that, we have the celebration of ordered tree life. In the middle of the garden, we have the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, this is something just for imagination. This is maybe just a thought to catch. Like, we, we should picture the Garden of Eden with a sort of um, geography or a layout with, with the right, what's the word? Is it topography? I can't remember. I'm blank on my terms. But we should view it. There's a river that flows down. So this garden is in an elevated place, a high place, like a mountain. And we have, as the text tells, the tree in the middle. So we've got this tree in the life. So we've got this picture of the Garden of Eden as like a mountain and the river flows down. And the reason why I say that, as you read the Old Testament, you realize the mountains are, were these 
great encounters happen, significant encounters with God. Think of Noah and the ark rests on the mountain. Abraham goes up the mountain. Moses, burning bush. We got mountains. So whenever mountains are giving the law, we, we have significant moments. Like I said, got something of an encounter that heaven and earth collide is going on here. And so we have that. We, it's not flat. We picture a bit of contours and we picture all centered around this, this tree life. And God's spirit was bringing order and his, this is the moment where it's like his word, which has been said to take off this tree, but not that tree, brings life and order. And there's just a hint without going beyond or getting ahead of ourselves for the reader that something is about to change. Something which, which something is about to go wrong as we know, which um, we will get to next week, which is an important note so that we don't get the impression that this is all just right stick your head in the sand stuff as we talk about the goodness of God. Particularly not with everything that we see in our news feeds, aware of real issues, climate change, Pakistan, everything that should, should fill our minds. Um, so there's a clue here that things are not going to be all as they were intended to be. But here, the goodness of God is pictured in this tree, this ordered life um, around obedience. Um, to the word of God. We've got rivers. We have waters earlier, which were de- depicted as chaotic seas. And then we have this progression where this, we have water, actually, waters can be good. <laughs> We've got rivers, uh, uh, rivers flowing. Rivers can bring life. Uh, rivers can bring healing in the Bible. We ha- what else is celebrated? We have work. Amen? <laughs> yes. Work is celebrated. To work and to keep you know, and, and even a sense of a bit of hard work, a bit of grab, you know, the, the, this is celebrated here as not something other, not something, oh, this is something pre-fall that is here that uh, humanity are given honorable for profession to work and take care, to serve and to keep. We have marriage and we have children. Let's not misinterpret the, the, the blessing to be fruitful and multiply. Like, let's not miss what that actually means. It means marriage, and it means everything goes to marriage that produces children. These are things that are celebrated as good and of God, and what he, he, he wants, one of the things he wants to give to us. Now, as people who follow uh, the, the single Messiah, you might want to make a lot of caveats that marriage is not the be-all and end-all, but on the other hand, you also want to say marriage is celebrated wildly in the Bible as something good, as something that can be an expression of God's goodness in a a deep uh, relationship with each other. And it all finishes at the end of chapter two, and it's all of these things, and you could go off into lots of them in more detail if we had time, but it just finishes, and it's kind of like all good (laughs) and no shame. No shame whatsoever. Verse 25 of chapter two is, is almost emphatic. And so, just a brief picture of God, a brief overview, just commenting in Genesis 1 and 2 on this vast array, back to the question, what counts as spiritual? Now, if you were to just read, like, Ephesians, say, 1, 3, so imagine, I don't know, an alien dropped in and all they were given, and they were trying to figure out, they knew there's a person, Jesus, they knew they're Christians, 
And they're only given Ephesians 1, 3, which says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he goes, you, you might forgive them for, you know, not really or answering that question, what is spiritual or what counts as spiritual in, in loads of different ways without the rest of what we have in Ephesians. Paul knew the goal, he wrote Ephesians, was to bring all things in unity under Christ's feet, all things in heaven and earth. But you see, if we, if we just take tidbits or little bits of the Bible, we, we, can, we can come to a vastly different conclusion. And so we probably need some sort of definition of spirituality from a Christian perspective to help us because there, there are, there's so many problems along this line. Historic problems and modern ones. Historic problems with trying to define an appropriate uh, spirituality have been things like Gnosticism and mysticism. Gnosticism is just the idea that the material world is, is bad. This is in broad strokes. The material world is bad and, and the spiritual is good and we get the spiritual through the special knowledge. And as quite a negative view of, of material things. Mysticism, I don't know, you could describe in lots of different ways. One way I've heard it described is just the sort of priority over personal, private experiences of God. Um, and, and these things just, I think, heresy in some ways just tends to re keep repeating itself. And in modern uh, challenges to Protestant Christian spiritualities, there's no one type, there's loads of different types. There's Ignatian, there's charismatic, there's... Roman Catholic, there's a whole different type when you start getting into it. But I think there can be problems when, you know, we have just an intellectual approach to faith. I see a, a mystical approach to faith, which is about you and your personal relationship with God and not much else. And so these aren't just philosophical problems that can have been a problem in time defining spirituality. These, these lead to real practical problems in our everyday life such as sometimes we never integrate those things that we spend most of our time doing. We get the God bit and get the Sunday, but I have no real clue about the rest of when I spend most of my time. We don't experience then other things as God's goodness or blessing. They're just in categories. I don't know what category they're in, but I like them, they're good, but I don't connect them with God. We miss God's heart for certain things, including his passion for justice, creation care, social justice. Well, these aren't spiritual things. The New Testament is spiritual. The Old Testament is... No. Jesus saw himself as the climax of this story. Or we make faith a, a conversation that is narrow and predicated on thou shalt nots, and, and rather than the invitation that Douglas shared us to, which was to come to Jesus, the abundant one. He says, I've come to give life in all its fullness. All of this, which I think just harms our, our impact and our evangelism, which is just the word good news to tell people about Jesus. If we don't appreciate the goodness of God in, in all aspects of our life and, and just little bits and grow in that, very likely that we'll not have as much goodness to share as we want to point people to who Jesus is. My guess is that there's a people's first thought who don't profess faith in Jesus when they think about God is not always or not quickly one of a being who's so full of goodness, kindness, creativity, love, and justice, which is on us as we are people who want to alert people to who Jesus and who God is. 
I came across a helpful definition. There are two words in them that just really, of spirituality, by a scholar, he's called Alistair McGrath, and he, he offered about 150 definitions of Christian spirituality. I just picked one, the one I thought was made most sense in light of all that we have been reading. He says this, Christian spirituality is about bringing together the fundamental ideas of Christianity and the whole experience of living on the basis of faith. Say that again, he's bringing together the fundamental ideas of Christianity and the whole experience of living on the basis of faith. It's not just ideas that just sit here. It's not just values, it's ideas, values, and also that get integrated into an existence, into a way of life. That's where Christian spirituality takes up. Not just ideas, but actually, yes, truth if you want, and ideas, but how they get integrated and lived. This is what makes up a Christian spirituality. It's almost like there's a sacramental quality to the world as we know it that we sometimes miss that we experience the spiritual through the contact of the physical, that we experience the goodness of God in the things. Now, we are schooled in Western philosophy, which, let's not go into that, but it is quite dualistic in its thinking, sort of body and spirit, and more lean to say body uh, bad, spirit good. And the Hebrew imagination, if you've been around the Hebrew Bible at all, the imagination is much more holistic. They naturally just hold uh, things uh, together. And if we go back to that picture, if you could imagine yourself this past week, after a tired day at war, where was the meaning in that? Where, or, or after just a, a ragged time, a problem, a, a, a hard situation, or maybe the case, like, where was your experience going of God? Does he care about that? And that word of bringing together, or maybe the word is, is about integrating, is a word that reminds me of the biblical concept of shalom, which is about wholeness, where things start to come together and make sense. And I want to say, Jesus wants to bring things together into our lives and to bring them into a harmony. The breathing of his spirit is to manifest in all of life, in all of its seasons, the good, the bad, and the painful ones. And so maybe before you might even explore the cross of Christ, or before you might repent of your sins, or before we know that we need to know that Jesus lived and died and rose again so that we could stand in the blessing of God, that he came to, to give life in, in all of its fullness, not to, like the thief to come and steal he come to declare all of these things good in their place as they come ordered under his care and his lordship. He wants to introduce us to God as our father and as, as we meet him in the son, as we meet him in the spirit, as this radiating warmth of goodness that will not let us go. And this is this picture of this tree, this ordered life, not thief killing life and destroying life. Jesus wants to bring things together into our lives, into a harmony. And I think the response of faith, if we can just hang out in this picture of this delightful God who delights in all of that, what he has made, I think this invites us to respond in at least two ways. One is about nurturing. The other is about celebrating. I think nurturing is about 
nurturing the sort of discipleship, which is language for what it means to follow him and not just to be content to have ideas about him. Church is not just about rocking up on the Sunday, having ideas about him, agreeing with each other, singing them, and then going. Discipleship is a language that says, actually, it's nurturing to understand what it means to walk with him in all areas of our life. And if we had a, a mystical Jesus or a Gnostic Jesus or a Jesus who only cares about spiritual things, then we wouldn't need to. We could just sing the right things. It wouldn't matter. But we have a Jesus who cares and, wants, and, and knows our lives are best when those things are brought in harmony. And so we, we need to nurture in our discipleship and try to. It's a process, a lifelong process, where we learn to just allow all of our life to be connected with who Jesus is and what he's doing. The kingdom, and this is the way of cross and resurrection, to learn how to love God, to love our neighbors, to learn how to be Christ-like in our homes, our work. This is when quiet time, I've said before, I get bored when people tell me about their quiet times. I don't mean that really like that, but people, I don't know, because I'm a pastor, I meet up with coffee people and they start telling me about their quiet times. I don't know why they do that, but they do. Um, And I get it, it's good. But do you know why I get bored with it sometimes? Because... Sometimes that's the easy part, but it's not really, it's quite hard, but it's easier than putting it into practice. Seeing how what God has said is translated into the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, self-control, and how it's expecting your relationship, that's much more interesting than, oh, I did my quiet time, couldn't care less, on one level, (laughs) hear me, don't quote me in that. That's not a tweet, by the way. It's just allowing, nurturing, so nurture, 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 this quality of discipleship in all areas of our life. And then the other aspect, which I think I'm, in some ways I'm pretty rubbish at, is, is about celebrating and the discipline of celebrating God's goodness in our lives. One of the most profound moments I had on sabbatical, many of you will know I had a luxury, luxury, luxury of sabbatical, um, Freudian, or a, and one of the things I got to do early on was to go on a trip to New York. In New York, I went to, you might think, why did I go to New York? Nice one, Stephen. I went to New York because there was a retreat, and it was a, it was a quite ecumenical retreat. And it was, it was, I found it absolutely brilliant on so many levels. But one of the standout moments of this uh, retreat was on the, the Wednesday night, or sorry, Tuesday night, we were told as part of the retreat, they say, look, we, have, we didn't run out of ideas of what to do in this retreat, but what we want you to do is to go out into the city, and they had loads of ways to curate this and help, so you didn't, if you wanted to go by yourself, great, if you wanted to go in a group, great. Um, go out into the city and find beauty. Find what fills you up, find what gives you life, and, and go and do that, and tomorrow we're just gonna come back and, and talk and celebrate some of what we experienced and what we did. And, uh, and they emphasize time and time again, this is not because we've run out of ideas of what to do. We want you to practice the gift or the discipline of celebrating and celebrating the goodness of God. That which fills you up and that which makes, feels you, makes you feel alive as you experience God's goodness in this world. And so I went, I, I, a group of us went out, uh, we listened to jazz in Bryant Park. We had food as we listened to jazz in Bryant Park. We went to the Brooklyn Bridge, went across and then walked across the Brooklyn Bridge and then we just went for a, a couple of drinks by the river to pretty late and then, then just walked home. And as we were sharing about that whole experience, 
uh, the next day. It just became quite obvious. We all did different things. Some people did their karaoke things. The speakers all did karaoke, which I was like, what? We all really, these were actually quite profound times as we sat and shared experiences around the Hudson River with people leading churches all around uh, North America, Australia, around the world. And do you know, there, there was something incredibly precious. And I was, my reflection on this was, I cannot think of the last Christian conference or anything I've been to where that time has been framed like that. Yes, I've had downtime. Yes, I've had free time. Yes, I've had time to go and do what I want. But it was never, I can't remember a time where it was framed to say, go experience the goodness of God and come back and tell us about it. And something in my soul was stirred. He was like, yeah, we need, we need to, to practice and learn what it means to celebrate the goodness of God. Let's remind ourselves as we lean into this theology, as we try and bring things together under Jesus, integrate it, that life is, can be like what the psalmist says in Psalm 16. He says, you've made known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May God, may God's spirit give us the grace of nurturing this sort of discipleship and lead us in celebrating this kind of abundant life for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we know we exist in a dark world. But whoever said that you were dark, whoever said that you were stingy, whoever said that you were like a thief, Lord, renew our understanding and our relationship with you, that you are good and that you want to unify our lives in a process. Um, thank you that you are who you say you are. Thank you that Jesus went to the extent he did to give up his life to show us his love and his desire for people to stand under the blessing of God again. where we've lost sight of you, come again by your grace. Where it's all silos, disconnect, don't get this, all just ideas, Spirit of God, just like you came over the waters of chaos, Lord, bring life and goodness and, and shape and form and reality to our walk with you, with each other, with our world. Save us from a dry intellectual faith. Your gospel is power and it's power to change lives. Uh, and yet we know that's a struggle. And we worship you, Jesus, with our whole lives. Amen.